Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do UFO sightings give new depth to the term Russian meddling? How many sightings during the Cold War were actually Soviet tricks, <clears throat> tricks to test Western defenses? Did the Soviets try to recruit British and American contactees as spies? Hello and welcome to the 823rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did I say 23rd or 823rd? It should be 823rd. I'm pretty sure I might I might have said 23rd. It is the 823rd. The radio historians was, will curse you for generations. I know, I, and I don't blame them. I am Ben, and those diplomatically sensitive questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and dad... Paul. And uh, today we bring you a show on a seldom discussed subject with two distinguished names in the UFO field. And we welcome your calls today, uh, 401-766-1240. That's the number from anywhere. Or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. You can contact us uh, via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Before we introduce our distinguished guest, we have, well, we have what we were hoping would be a surprise. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Getting over cold here. Uh, we were hoping to have in studio today, all the way from the vast northern forests of New England, uh, one of our favorite guest co-hosts, Steve LaPlume. Uh, Steve was a U.S. Uh, Air Force security policeman at RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, England, during the Rendlesham Forest incidents of 1980-1981, often known as Britain's Roswell. Uh, Steve uh, was a bit under the weather today, couldn't come down to the studio. However, we do expect him to call in, and we uh, have, hope to have a really, really great dialogue on the subject of... Um, Soviet involvement in uh, uh, these bizarre uh, sightings, etc. So, uh, let us move to our guest. And uh, unless we live, uh, unless you live under a rock, you know about Nick Redfern. He's the author of more than 40 books on all areas of the paranormal. In the UFO realm, they include Men in Black, Women in Black, The Roswell UFO Conspiracy, and 365 Days of UFOs. Nick has graced our airwaves both here at WOON and on CBS many times over the years. He has a familiar face on television, including the BBC's Out of This World, the Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive, the History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets and UFO Hunters, the National Geographic Channel's Paranatural, and MSNBC's Countdown. Recently, Nick personally honored me by writing the foreword for my latest book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, released a few months ago. Nick's latest book, Flying Saucers from the Kremlin, released in June, is the subject of our discussion today. Uh, Nick's website uh, is nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. Uh, Fortian being a reference to Charles Fort, F-O-R-T-E-A-N. So, Nick Redfern, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Hey, guys. Well, thanks for having me on again. Oh, well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. So, Nick, start us off with... What you know about the Soviets and the UFO incidents of the 1940s and 50s, and maybe even before? Well, I mean, as far as the, the Russians are concerned, uh, and going back to the earliest years of the, of the Cold War, um, they sort of ran several programs to um, essentially um, create paranoia and fear and hysteria um, by, by quite literally fabricating bogus UFO stories and spreading them here and there and trying to, in, in essence, um, have US intelligence sort of running around like headless chickens um, by creating these psychological warfare programs and disinformation campaigns 
and um, and so you know it's our side's um, turn, if you like, to, to try and stop this from happening. But um, as I point out in the book, you know, there's, there's 50 years worth, if not more, of attempts by the Russians to use the UFO subject as a means of, as I said, like psychological warfare and um, and trying to um, create paranoia on the other side. Sorry, Nick, we missed most of that because uh, I got distracted doing something technical. Please, could you <laughs> <laughs> could you restart? Oh, sorry, that's yeah, no, that's no problem. Yeah, do you want me to just like just start pretend you didn't say it in the first place and just we'll we'll, yes. we'll have our listeners back? <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Well, yeah, they, I might fire the producer here. What's that? I might fire the producer here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go go well, ahead, Nick. Flying Saucers from the Kremlin, and it's basically a sort of 50, 60-year study um, of the ways in, and means by which the, the Soviets at the height of the Cold War essentially created bogus UFO stories, and they did so as a means to create paranoia and hysteria and to have U.S. intelligence sort of running around like headless chickens, that was the goal of the Russians. And thankfully, you know, we were able to um, see a lot of these Russian programs for what they were. But others were, were quite extensive um, and detailed to the point where some of the stories that the Russians created uh, in relation to UFOs are still talked about in ufology today with, without people actually realizing that their stories originated in Russia rather than outer space. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, can, you, can you give us some specific cases uh, of that? Well, yeah. I mean, if we go back to the, the early years of ufology, and um, for people who don't know, that the term flying saucer um, was created in the summer of 1947. That's when uh, a pilot named Kenneth Arnold um, had this strange encounter with like a squadron of UFOs over by uh, Mount Rainier in Washington State. And the term uh, flying saucer was quickly created and, you know, it was sort of like... Um, a new part of history began. Everybody's heard of flying saucers and, and UFOs today. Um, now, if you go sort of the, the early years of ufology, um, one of the biggest areas and most controversial areas was the, the realm of what had become known as the contactees. And the contactees were people who essentially claimed face-to-face -face contact with very human-looking aliens usually out in sort of remote de uh, desert locations like uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and so on. Now, what's particularly intriguing is that one of the, or the most famous uh, of all the contactees was a man named George Adamski. And George Adamski sort of defines these um, contactee encounters in the 50s. Uh, and... According to Adamski, uh, again, later um, in the, uh, the desert, he had this um, strange encounter with this very human-looking alien, long blonde hair, and the alien, and its cohorts as well, cla <coughs> excuse me, claimed that um, 
that we all should follow their way of life and lay down our nuclear weapons and live in peace with everybody else. That was the essential um, theme of nearly all of the, the contactee type experiences. Now, what's particularly intriguing is that the FBI opened a surveillance file on George Adamski, which has now been declassified under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act. And that file, as of now, I mean, it's been built up over the years as the FBI have released more and more papers. But right now, the file on Adamski is just over 400 pages in length. And one of the reasons why the FBI's file on Adamski is so extensive is because in his early lectures and speeches and conferences, Adamski said that um, the aliens had sort of a communist-type government. And that, that kind of sounds like laughable today, you know, like <laughs> a joke. But back then, on his lectures and on his um, conference circuits, etc., etc., um, he brought this up on pretty much every occasion, and he would say, you know, well, they they have a Russian-type um, environment, they have a communist government, and then he would say, and by the way, you know, communism isn't that bad after all. <laughs> you know, that that's what he was saying to American audiences, and the FBI got concerned that Adamski was using the UFO phenomenon as a means to be able to spread communism. That, that's what the, the fear and the understandable fear, fear of the FBI was. Now, I remember now, those if, times. Yeah. Yeah, I was a kid. Well, if... What's that? I was a kid. Oh, cool. Believe um, <laughs> I was a kid uh, once, yeah. <laughs> but um, one of the interesting things about all this is that if you look at the, the overall story, what we find is not just the, the concern that Adamski um, was sort of working, uh, you know, to, to spread communism and doing it under a, a UFO banner, so to speak. The other angle was that the FBI had suspicions that Adamski may actually have been in, in sort of cohorts with... Um, with Russian agents uh, operating in the US. And there was this, that was actually one of the big suspicions, you know, how, is this guy, you know, talking about UFOs, has he actually got sort of um, Russian comrades, so to speak? And now, if Adamski, um, you know, was just speaking to, say, 20 people in a local library on a Sunday afternoon. I don't think anybody, even the FBI, I don't think anybody would really care about that. But that's not what happened. Adamski's first book, Flight Sources of Landed, which came out in 53, that sold in six figures. Um, the conferences and lectures that he spoke at, they sold out. So in other words, the reason why Adamski was perceived as being a national security problem, quite literally, was because he was speaking to literally thousands and thousands of people, whether on the lecture circuit or people who read his books and so on. And, and that, was, that was the primary reason as to why not just Adamski, but many of the other early contactees were all, all had files open on them. Uh, George Van Tassel, who um, built the Integratron out in uh, California, his FBI files about 300 pages long, 
uh, Orfeo Angelucci's was roughly 200, um, and the list goes on and on. And it was all because the, uh, many of these contactees had this extreme left-wing communist um, view. Hmm. And, um, and, and again, it's sort of fascinating part of early UFO history where uh, US, the US intelligence agencies weren't just investigating UFO sightings, they were actually trying to figure out if someone from, from the Soviet Union was planning on trying to find ways to spread communism and, and do it under this angle of flying saucers. Hmm. Well, uh, well we, we should introduce our co-host who has joined us by phone. Uh, Steve LaPlume, welcome to the show again. Why, thank you. Yeah, thank and you uh, audio is good. And uh, Steve, as we introduced you earlier, Steve is one of our uh, regular guest co-hosts, though not uh, not often enough in our opinion. But uh, we're glad to have him with us today. So uh, we have the two of you fellows together here. Uh, and Steve, why don't you just cue us in briefly on the Rendlesham Forest experience uh, for which you were present at the base and uh, th- there were Soviet uh, suggestions regarding the origin of that and then maybe Nick could comment. Yeah, yeah, and actually that's, uh, that's one of the main things that I was always interested in about this case is, you know, we, we always heard that uh, it wasn't a UFO, uh, the stuff that they saw breaking up in the sky was actually a Soviet satellite that had come in and broken up and we were picking it up and you know, that was kind of one of the main stories that would kind of account for some funny lights in the sky. So um, so there was that going around. But, you know, at the same time, um, Reagan gave a speech about external threats to the world and how we would probably all come together as one earthly family if we had an external threat. And I often wondered if the Rundlesham Forest incident maybe got our side talking to their side a little bit about stuff like that, you know? I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, go ahead, Nick. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that story as well, Steve, about, you know, the Russian um, satellites sort of, uh, you know, coming through the atmosphere and breaking up and so on. You know, and, um, you know, it's an interesting scenario with the time frame. Um, I guess the big issue, you know, the people who, who sort of, you know, take the alien angle would say, um, you know, well, what, well, then what was the craft in, in the woods, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, just yeah, it makes for a good cover-up story. <laughs> What's that? I said it makes for a good cover-up story is kind of the point I was getting Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think what's fascinating about the Rendlesham case is that there actually are several different theories that have been put forward, you know, as well as the Russian one, there's the UFO angle. I've heard stories about sophisticated hologram technology designed to see how you know, how people could be lured into sort of a fake scenario mm-hmm. by seeing these incredible holograms that really didn't exist, you know, in a physical sense. Um, so, you know, and it wouldn't surprise me if at least some of these different scenarios were sort of put out there to try and confuse researchers from getting too close to the truth. You know, you swamp a bunch of UFO researchers with six or seven different theories they're going to be running around like headless chickens trying to get the answers, and maybe the real answer would be buried in these other sort of seven or eight cases. I think that's a good possibility. I'm thinking of a show, fellows, that we did uh, some years ago with Monroe Nevels, 
who was um, a uh, an Air Force uh, security. Uh, actually, he was the disaster specialist on the base. Steve, am I wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the guy that was in charge of the Geiger counter. Exactly, and yeah. he came in afterwards and took readings of where the landing had occurred, things of this kind. And um, he has been on the show a number of times. Uh, a couple times you've been on together with him, Steve, I believe, when we were doing that series about 10 years ago. Oh, when I was in China, yeah. Yes. And uh, his opinion was, hands down, that it was Soviet in origin. And, uh, you know, very much along the lines of what some of the things Nick has suggested. Now, I kind of suspected there might have been... People who have a, a, a religious agenda will sometimes want to go with the Soviet thing because it, it fits more with the scenario. You know, maybe they're right. I don't know. But um, what, what uh, who, are there any of the other um, witnesses, uh, for either of you fellows, uh, this question could could go to, uh, who um, whom I maybe have forgotten about who, who believe the Soviet uh, explanation? No. Nobody I know really, okay. really think for that. No, no I, I don't. I mean, the only thing I know about the Russian story or the Russian theory is what I've read in, in books on Rendlesham. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's move on to, uh, and, you know, Steve, jump in here when you're, you know, you're not in the studio, so I can't see your hand. Oh, Ben wants to get in here. So, I forgot about Ben. Yeah, no, I know. I'm here. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, we had Kathleen Martin on, um, Probably about a month or two ago, and she was thought she's you know big big into contactee experiences and has what it's like something like six thousand cases. Oh, it's amazing that she that she's researched and worked on, and she just gets more and more every day. And I I, I think it's interesting when we talk about contactee experiences, you know, pre um, you know nineteen ninety nineteen eighty when you know the sort of experience of of someone who has been abducted. It kind of gets the spotlight rather than, you know, the machine itself. And you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this. Since a lot of people were more into the idea of, oh, there's flying saucers, but nobody really cared about contact, and people, if they brought it up, were just kind of, you know, shoot off and said, ah, you're crazy or, or whatever. So my question is this. For, from what we know, um, the experiences that, that were that were had by contactees that were supposed that were then played off as communist sympathizers. How were these experiences recorded, and did they differ from any of the experiences that have been recorded today? Um, well, certainly the if you go back to the 1950s cases, they were sort of far more quaint and bizarre in the sense that you know the the contactees were talking about meeting human-looking aliens from Mars and from Saturn and Jupiter. And, you know, and they'd have bizarre titles, you know, like Captain This or Colonel That. You know, it was like <laughs> really something just straight out of a world of sci-fi. Mm. Um, and if you read the stories, you know, there's um, literally, uh, which I, I don't in many of the cases... You know, I, I I think there have been these contactee experiences, but I think the the mindsets of the witnesses, the people who had these encounters, I think this you can look at a lot of the cases and realise that to a degree, some of them, the the people had had their minds sort of um, altered. You know, this this sort of brings things in, like for example, um, with Orfeo Angelucci, who was one of the uh, 1950s um, contactees. He said that um, 
he believed to start with that his encounters with the, with the real deal you know he'd had he'd met these sort of human looking aliens and had these philosophical conversations and and debates about nuclear war and all this kind of thing but over time he came to suspect that, that's probably the best word to describe him he, he came to suspect that his mind had been um, sort of manipulated on several occasions one famous case uh, or famous example uh, when he was in a diner out in California and he talked about how this guy um, who called himself Adam slipped uh, a pill into his drink on the, on the table and in no time at all he started to hallucinate and it was almost as if he'd been hit by LSD or something at least similar, similar you know like um, a psychedelic solution and um, he, and what's particularly intriguing is that on several occasions Angelucci talked about how a mysterious group of Russian people tried to get him to um, talk about the, 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 the uh, contact tea issue from a communist angle and, and to spread in his lectures that, you know, communism's great. And, um, you know, if we look at that t today, that sounds quite plausible. Back then, people were just saying, you know, you're crazy. But, um, you know, what we know with sort of manipulation and things like that by the Russians, um, you know, for me, the, the Angelucci story is one of the most important because you have him talking about being approached by these uh, groups of like four or five Russian guys saying, you know, can you we, 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 we come to some of your lectures and conferences we like them, we like what you're talking about but can you put more of a like a left wing, not so much left wing I shouldn't say that, but more of a, a like a communist based um, angle and he wouldn't do it but then, you know, when he was hit with these sort of psychedelic drugs and, and what sounds like mind control, something similar to MK Ultra in the 50s, then you begin to realise that some of these bizarre contactee case, uh, cases from the 50s may not have literally occurred as the, the contactees assumed they did. Um, it may actually have been a, a widespread, sophisticated programme to affect the mindsets of the contactees and, as I said, have them to spread the word that, you know, communism's great and capitalism should be banned, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Well, it's interesting because some of the some of the contactee, um, you know, experiences, some of our, our close friends, they have these, these, these philosophical, you know, ev everything's united, equal, you know, ev everything's all, all one. And I, I wonder if... A message like that, say someone has it as a legit, you know, contact experience where it's not, you know, Soviets trying to do mind control, but say, you know, hey, nuclear war is obviously bad. You know, we all we don't want to destroy the planet, or you know, some some messages that would have been construed as like hippy dippy kind of stuff. <laughs> would that would that have been, you know, uh, you know, misconstrued as as communist sympathizings? Well, yeah, I mean that's a good point because you know it, it very much. Con con can kind of go both ways, you know, in terms of how you interpret this. And I mean, a, a classic example of this is the the Ethereum Society, um, which has been around for, like, I think, 60 years now, which is very much like a, a contactee-driven organisation that was created back in the 50s in the UK, but which now has its headquarters in California. And 
just a few years ago the Brit under the terms of the British Freedom Information Act um, a group or an organisation within the British Police Force called Special Branch which has now been absorbed into another group um, just a few years ago Special Branch declassified its files on the Ethereum Society and the reason why they had a, a, quite a lengthy file on the group which was created by a guy named George King the reason why Special Branch opened this top secret file on the Ethereum Society was because the Ethereum Society we were also saying you know we need to lay down our atomic weapons or we're going to have like a face to face um, confrontation with the Russians and everybody's going to lose you know which would have would be the case if we ever went to war you know no one can win a nuclear war it's impossible um, and so what happened was they, they created this file on the Ethereum Society for one primary reason that um, the Ethereum Society was saying look you know it's all going to go bad unless we all become friends and you know the Russians aren't so bad after all etc etc and again the in the same situation with the FBI in the United States. A special branch um, started to have agents sitting in the audiences at, um, at uh, the Ethereum Society's conferences and lectures. Um, sometimes they would put um, lectures on out in the streets in London, and the you know the guys would be sitting in the audiences taking notes, etc., etc. And you can tell from the files again. Um, that with the Ethereum Society, there was this concern on the part of Special Branch. Well, are these guys just um, people who are worried about nuclear war, or are they being subtly and secretly maneuvered by the Soviets as a means to try and influence the UK population to think, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad in Russia, you know, maybe communism isn't the worst thing on the planet. And that, uh, those, again, were sort of the primary reasons why Special Branch and the FBI in the U.S. opened the files. Now, you could say, well, is this just government paranoia worrying, you know, about a, a Russian threat that isn't real? But the more you dig into it, you do find hard evidence that the Russians did, infil did infiltrate both U.K. and U.S. Um, UFO research groups as a means, again, to just, um, you know, kind of have people think about communism and do it, you know, by saying, well, you know, the alien, if it's good enough for the aliens, it should be good enough for us, you know, yeah. that kind of Okay, well, we're gonna, I'd like to expand this discussion when we come back from our break, but right now uh, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our amazing guest today, Nick Redfern, and our special guest co-host, Steve LaPlume. We'll be right back. Did you know that in the 1960s, 92% of Americans listened to local radio every week? What do you think it is now? I bet it's a lot less. Would you believe that it's still 92%? Wait, you mean more people listen to radio than TV? Yes, more people use local radio every week than any other device. I know I listen. I just didn't realize that everyone else does too. 92% of Americans listen every week. You are right now. Thanks. You can depend on us for public service. Owen Radio. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It is WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. 
And we are continuing our discussion on, on flying saucers from the Kremlin today with the author of that book and uh, our good friend Nick Redfern and also our special guest co-host Steve LaPlume, who was present uh, on the uh, at, in Britain at the uh, NATO base uh, Uf, uh, the UFO incident in Rendlesham Forest in 1980-1981. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, and Steve, you know, jump in here uh, anytime you want to ask a question, but... It, I'd like to expand the discussion uh, to involve, um, I mean, everybody blames the Russians for everything, and, and as Ben just said during the break, they are very, very good at, what did you say, Ben? Oh, I, very uh, well put. I, uh, oh, wow, what did I say? Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I think said, you were the old guy. Well, it's uh, ironic, because the, the Soviets, they were, once they finally got themselves established, they infil- they pretty much set out plans to infiltrate Every area of society and the Communist Party and the Socialists specifically were very good at that. Like in the 1930s, they successfully inserted themselves into most American political parties. They successfully infiltrated the Catholic Church. They successfully infiltrated pretty much most areas of society. And it's ironic because a, a group that was all about, you know, power to the working man and whatever was. You know, the stuff that, that would be considered, you know, basic human rights, you know, they felt the need to, to infiltrate, you know, society and do all sorts of other stuff. It was, they were the kings and queens of irony, but it, it also they were incredibly good at, you know, playing on people's emotions and morals. So let's expand the discussion a little, unless Steve has a question on that very subject, uh, to other groups who might have done this. Now, everything the Russians have done to us, I mean, we've been doing to them, too, and, and, and the Brits and everybody has been doing to each other, particularly West versus East, since at least the 1920s and probably since the 1890s or even before. I mean, oh, yeah, the socialists were, were all over thing. the place. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, what about, I mean, the Soviet Union has been gone, essentially, since 1991. Uh, the, the inheritor organizations of the KGB, and I want to get into that, too. Uh, are, are still there, but it seems like China, you know, they're not pure as a driven snow. I mean, you'd think as with, the, with the news coverage that they were. But, uh, do, Nick, what do you think about, or, or Steve, you lived in China. What do either of you think about uh, Chinese interference via the UFO field? Uh, is there any, and what what is its nature? Uh, well, me personally, um, I actually, you know, there was a couple of... Um, prominent UFO sightings when I was over there, and it, we were really hard-pressed to find anybody with any UFO research or anything, and hmm. I don't think they're really into that at all. They, they kind of believe it, kind of not. They're, yeah. You know, I, as far as the Chinese infiltrating, like, the UFO community and stuff, I don't even think that'd be a route they would go, but maybe I'm ignorant on that. Maybe they call the Soviet, you know, pattern, but... Yeah. Uh, they, they, yeah. When it comes to stuff like that, superstition and religion, it's just like a path they don't really go down. Well, I suppose, and maybe Nick could comment on this too, uh, that they it took a while for the Chinese to get their act together after their, because their revolution was, was way, way later than the Soviet one. And also far longer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 1949. Yeah. And yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, Nick, I mean, what say you? Oh, Nick? What's that? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no. What say you on the subject of China and, and any UFO influence? Oh, well, I mean, th- there are a couple of books that have been written on UFOs in China, but I have to say, um, kind of like with Steve, you know, I don't 
really have any evidence, you know, that in the same way, in the way that the Russians, you know, launched these programs against the US in relation to UFOs. I haven't actually seen evidence that, you know, the, the, the Chinese have done something that kind of parallels that. So either they didn't do it or it's been incredibly successfully buried, you know, and out of view. But um, I would have thought we would have had at least a few pinpoints, you know, um, of data that have surfaced. But other than literal sightings, you know, I'm not really aware of anything in terms of, you know, like the psychological warfare aspect of it all. I think I'll jump. I'm sorry, this is Steve. Can I jump in here with a... Sure, Steve. Sure, uh, well, it's just, as you think of the uh, time frame back then in the 50s and the, you know, with the Cultural Revolution in the 70s, and everything, I don't think China was even capable of getting people there. I mean, they were a very close society up until the time that, mm-hmm. you know, like the mid-70s. So that's a consideration as well. Well, I think the landscape has changed a lot, too. And, you know, with the dawn of the, of the Internet and, you know, the the amount of disinformation that we go through in 30 minutes is more than people went through in, you know, 30 days. It's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah. the sheer amount of, of, of data that is that is, is shared all, all the time is just, it's incomprehensible. I think I think at the time, you know, the, the, so, the Soviets were, were in this sort of mode where, you know, the, the Cold War was a really fascinating sort of portion of history because really it, it raged behind the scenes with all sorts of weird sort of backdoor wars, it, not, in, not including, you know, Vietnam and, and um, you know, Korea or, or any of those conflicts. Like the sort of psych- psychological damage that both sides wreaked on each other that was, that was just a whole it – was, it was completely different. So something like, you know, psych- psychologically damaging people for the sake of spreading communism was, was like, okay, yeah, you know, we can find some weird ways to do that. Let's do that. You know, let's infiltrate Hollywood. Let's do all of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we gave it right back to them. You know, McCarthyism is like a, gr- a great, you know, finger point to say, hey, you know, this is, you know, there was some stuff that was actually probably legitimate concerns, and then there was stuff that wasn't. Like, um, you know, pretty much everybody knows, and if you don't know, this is a really fun fact, that um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was actually a metaphor for McCarthyism. And it's 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 super interesting. McCarthyism being uh, Senator Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin uh, going after any suspected communist influence in Washington D.C. or anywhere in the country, the, the colleges or whatever. Oh yeah, <clears throat> and it was it was uh, it was a big meta. It was a metaphor for, in nineteen fifties. It was yeah, yeah. I think it was like nineteen fifty seven. And they hauled people before the uh, House Un American Activities Committee. Yeah, it was super interesting. The Senate, yeah. Well, we we spent like a good like few weeks of that. I got lecture after lecture about it in college, ironically, and it was um, yeah. and it, it was it was actually really interesting because it sh- it kind of shows the fear. Right, that that was that was surrounding this. I think I think that's a point that is often missed when people look back, like the "Ooh, watch out for the communists!" like kind of kind of attitude. It was it was terrifying, right? We were scared to death of the communists. Yeah, I, I don't I think anybody uh, under the age of thirty really understands that. Yeah, and it's and it was it was terrifying stuff that like at any point in time, you know, a nuke could be sent. You know, what's more terrifying than that? being on the brink of destruction at all times, and then, you know, you have this weird clandestine program that's really all about, you know, taking something that could be a positive experience and then twisting it ever so slightly 
to ruin you and to ruin you know where you live, your home, your relationships with other people. And it it shows the sort of stock that we put into these experiences, right? And it shows that you know some some people would go as far to take something that could be a potentially life changing experience. But then change it in a in a horrible and perverted way. Well, this is totally off topic, but but it's an interesting historical note. Uh, Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, lives here in Rhode Island, and uh, it, Rhode Island being so small, everybody knows everybody else. So I actually was able to have a conversation with him at one point some years ago, and a very nice chap, a professor, engineer, and I said, you know, I have to used to have to hide under desks because of your father. And he laughed. He said, well, you know, really, it wasn't funny. That uh, They had just as much fear there. As it but that, that's totally irrelevant to what we're talking about. Sorry. No, it's uh, basically what the point that I'm trying to get to is the, at, the atmosphere was, was, was ripe yes, it for was. these these sort of, you know, we want to influence the country. We yeah. want to do this. And then, you know, pointing at your enemies for what you're actually doing. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if the United States ever did anything like that. Oh, never. We're Union. pure as the driven stuff. Well, I know oh, that. Yeah. Oh, my, oh, my God. Yes, yeah, so I'm sure yeah. we are. <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that is stuff I can't say. I can't say. But right, I'm, right, yeah. 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 That's fair. You and me both. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, all you got to do is look at some of the stuff we pulled in Latin America. And, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's oh, definitely, yeah. definitely not pure as the driven stuff. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. It was... Uh, there's a conflict. That's that's what it is. Sure. <laughs> uh, Nick, any uh, any comments on that before we move on? Yeah, one I can think of, you know, when you're talking about both sides doing this, one of the more interesting um, stories that reached me when I was doing the research on all of this was how it could potentially have tied in with the whole Area 51 Bob Lazar scenario. Oh. For people who don't know, Bob Lazar was this scientist who claimed to have worked out at Area 51 in the late 80s for a short period and claimed that there were UFOs stored there and so on. Now, one of the interesting theories that came to me was that, well, what's the, one of the best ways to perhaps freak out the Russians in the, in the late 80s is to spread rumours that we have uh, extraterrestrial technology, maybe even extra, extraterrestrial weaponry, and it's stored out at Area 51, and you subtly, and maybe sometimes not quite so subtly, see this story into the public domain and into pop culture before before too long everybody knows about the stories of aliens at Area 51 um, but the, the scenario that was put to me was that this was actually a ruse and that Lazar was not um, like a knowing player he was like an unwitting player in this program designed to have people think that there are aliens at Area 51 when they're actually on any aliens there and, and the, the the way it was explained to me it was twofold the, at the, that same time US intelligence was concerned that there were significant numbers of Soviet or Russian agents in the US so what's the best way to uh, lure them in how about telling them or putting this story out there that they're not going to be able to stay away from you know like the dangling carrot that kind of thing mm. and the, the story as it was told to me was that a number of these Russian agents were successfully 
arrested and essentially turned. It was either that or you, you know, you do 25 years in prison. And basically, they were sort of ordered by the, their Russian um, handlers, you know, we need to know what's going out at Area 51. You know, and it was kind of quite literally like the, you know, the fish and the baits, and these Russian spies were captured or arrested and without any real secrets ever being um, compromised. It was just a psychological warfare operation creating bogus UFO stories in Area 51 and then sitting back and waiting for the, those Russian spies to get closer and closer to the base and find out what's going on, and then they pounce. And apparently it works, you know. Hmm. hmm. Well, here's, here's the question of the hour, I suppose, and this is to uh, both of you for your opinions. Which how how do you tell which cases uh, are were influenced came from the Kremlin or really came from wherever these UFO legitimate UFOs so to speak might come from? Well, that's an important point because I actually mentioned this at the very start of the book. Mm. You know, no doubt in my mind that there is um, a genuine UFO phenomenon. You know, whether it's extraterrestrial or multi-dimensional or, or whatever it is to me there's enough data enough credible cases to suggest that there is a real phenomenon but then of course the big problem is how do you differentiate between the real cases and what might actually be psychological warfare disinformation programs cases driven like that so we need to be very careful when we, you know, when we look at all these stories throughout the last sort of 50, 60 years, you know, and particularly throughout the Cold War, um, you know, which, which were the real cases and which were the ones that were so successful that people still believe they were the real cases, but maybe they weren't. I mean, you know, I mentioned at the start, like, George Adamski. I mean, his, his, ex, his file, his FBI file, 400 pages long because... The FBI was concerned he was spreading communism under a UFO banner. Or was it really the case that he did meet aliens and they really were communists? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> That's true. Uh, Steve, any comment? Yeah, yeah, if I can chime in on my two cents here. Um, yeah, you know, when it, when it comes to disinformation, I, I think you can confirm this, Paul. I mean, that was kind of at its peak of art form back in the 80s. They were really getting into it a lot as far as spreading out a lot of stuff. The intelligence yeah. communities were. So, I mean, how do you know what is a real case and not? I mean, I have a real case. I saw something. But what did I see? Did I see a hologram like Nick? I was just going to ask that. What you... I mean, what did I see? I had, I, I'll go to my grave never knowing what I saw. I'm, I'm fine with that. Can you, know? can you describe but, it for those who haven't heard it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I we were looking down the uh, the end of the road, which is, I don't know, maybe 400, 300 yards down, down to the main road, and I saw a a craft coming over the trees, and it was aligned a little bit to the right, because usually the craft's coming in to make a landing on the runway or to the left. It came over the trees, and it was going slow, and it was kind of cigar-shaped and kind of foggy, and then they got over my head, and I could see a hatch on the bottom. But, but I always had this disconnect from the time I was looking at it, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is incredible. Built this thing. You'll never see nothing like this again in your life. You know? I mean, I knew what I was looking at, you know, and I knew it was awesome. And, um, but there's a disconnect between when I was looking at it and then it was over to the right. It was just a couple seconds where I just don't remember it going from over my head to the right. So could that be uh, 
Um, everybody goes, oh, you were taken by aliens. Uh, oh, okay, well, maybe they needed to change a hologram image for a second. I don't know. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But there was they, no sound. Just, no, there was no sound. Yeah. So so what is the truth? You know, I mean, look, look at the Flat Earth program going on right now, which was started by 4chan, I believe. I mean, the public so easily manipulated it. Oh yeah, Fortune said some <laughs> some amazing things in their time. <laughs> I love Fortune; they're great. <laughs> okay, uh, well we're burning up the hour here. I wanted to give Nick a chance to talk about his uh, website, his blog, um, the books, where people can find out more. Go for it, Nick. Um, well, all my books are available on Amazon, and about sixty percent of them you can get off the shelves in Barnes and Noble. And if people want to contact me. Um, I've got a, a blog uh, called World of Whatever, and uh, so if you just type in Nick Redfern, World of Whatever, it'll take you to the, the blog, and you can uh, contact me there. You know, I'm always happy uh, to, to chat with people if they've got questions or want to share information or ex- experiences, you know. And um, also, people can reach me at Twitter, Nick Redfern UFO, so um, I'm, I'm easily, or hopefully easily, uh, contactable. Very good. <laughs> Uh, Steve is a man of mystery. Uh, I don't know how much you want to reveal about... Uh... No, actually, you know what? I mean, this past year, Paul, I've just kind of decided to put myself out in the public eye a little more and stuff. Well, oh, good. I've, got, I've just got a lot of my notes from the past that are with the bed, let's put it that way. It can be therapeutic. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, in a therapeutic way, not literally. <laughs> so can people contact you? or, or um, not Yeah, yeah. Yet? As a matter of fact, I, um, I've got a YouTube channel on getting going it's called the roland thompson project oh yes Tom. right yeah and uh let's get some goofy stuff on it just me acting and doing okay and you can always uh, expand that yeah so, you can always yeah. contact steve through us through the show yeah uh, okay great all right and, so uh let's uh, i wanted to talk about the mothman case a little bit uh, of the 1960s in the ohio valley but the the press called it the mothman sort of a bat-like a uh, human-like figure that was seen uh, flying and doing all sorts of uh, interesting things and scaring the, the daylights out of the local population. And there were other things, too, that were going on, uh, men in black and uh, ghosts and uh, UFOs and you name it. We, I mean, we've been down there interviewing. We interviewed some witnesses and uh, done a lot of research over the years, and it's really, really uh, quite extensive, as have I'm sure you know, Nick, too, is familiar with this, and so is Steve. So the question is, uh, it, it, it has come up in our own interviews of people that many of the men in black uh, or things that were interpreted as men in black were really government agents who were concerned that the Soviets might have been behind the whole Mothman phenomenon. Did anybody have any information on that? No, I don't Okay. All right. Well. All right. Maybe we. Well, that was easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we more know more than most people. <laughs> we asked the question, but yeah, we'll we'll, we'll uh, keep you fellows in the loop on that. Uh, that's that. There was just some suspicion. A couple of people have been on the show, and, and people we've spoke, spoken with privately who thought that there probably might have been a, a serious concern about that on the part of the government, whether it was legitimate or not. You know, in that case, again, uh, primarily 1966, 1967, but it, it, it still does it does kind of go on. Well, I guess, you know, this kind of begs begs the question that, you know, with our, our sort of discussion of, of mass hysteria and public opinion changing, especially with the Internet nowadays, but kicking it back like 50, 60 years, we we see that there's a lot of, a lot of sort of 
hysteria around flying saucers, you know, even with something like the the old uh, War of the Worlds broadcast or or yeah, whatever that was. That. Yeah, exactly. That you know, even if it's something like you know a modern version of that, which is essentially 4chan, you know, changing public opinion through stupid little little twists. What is the likelihood that a majority of you know the the flying saucer stuff in the in the fifty the fifties the forties and fifties? How much of that would we be able to point to and say this is you know Soviet or military interference and this is actually extraterrestrial? Could the change in how how we how UFOs have changed from you know flying saucers to basically balls of light is that some sort of evidence we can point to? Well, that's a good question because for the for the most part the the data that I have is that the Russians were sort of um, spreading rumours and stories and, and fabricating bogus documents in relation to UFOs. And that's easy to do. But I've, I haven't really come across many reports where someone's claimed, you know, that the Russians literally built, you know, a, a flying saucer as a means to um, convince people that aliens, you know, were, were invading. But what I have heard is that the Russians were working in the throughout the Cold War on programs involving radar where they could sort of um, distort images on radar screens um, to, you know, create sort of bogus images that aren't actually real. Hmm. You know, in other words, the, the plan would be to sort of, um, you know, have U.S. intelligence radar operators, you know, seeing things on their screens which actually were there. That's about the closest, you know, I, I can come to in terms of, um, you know, sort of, I won't say hardware because that's the wrong word, but it's the closest thing I can think, think of that comes to, like, hardware and, and something actually, you know, going beyond documents and rumors and, um, and that kind of thing. Mm. Okay, we only have a minute or two left, but I wanted to get to the question of the uh, involvement of the KGB if any, with the MJ-12 documents. And maybe, Nick, you could explain just briefly what the MJ-12 documents are and and whatever connection there may have been with uh, some sort of Soviet influence, if any. Yeah, I've actually got a couple of chapters on MJ-12 mm. and the Russians in the book. And uh, for people who don't know, MJ-12 is allegedly this sort of top-secret group hidden or buried deep within the U.S. Um, government and which supposedly oversees things like the, the Roswell crash and the dead alien bodies and that kind of thing. And supposedly the group was created in the late 1940s in the aftermath of Roswell. And over the years, a number of so-called leaked documents from this group have been put into the public domain. The big question is, are these documents real or are they not? One of the things I found out... Um, was that the FBI had, a, when the documents surfaced in the late 80s, the FBI had concerns that the documents were not just the work of some kid in his basement, you know, that scenario. Mm. And they did that, but they also didn't believe the documents were real. And they, they got it into their head, had this intriguing, interesting theory that the MJ-12 documents were actually created by the Russians. And the reason was because in that time frame, 87, 88, when the documents surfaced, there were worries within U.S. intelligence that there were um, 
people in US intelligence who may actually have been working with the Russians. You know, they'd been turned, they'd been blackmailed because there was something in their background, that kind of thing. And so the the theory was that the the Russians were saying to these people they turned, well, you know, you get us a bunch of material and data on, let's say, the stealth bomber, and we'll send you some really cool documents on crashed UFOs. And supposedly this happened on several occasions where... Nick, I'm afraid the, I have to stop you. We're just about out of time, right. but we'll, we'll, we'll keep the thought. We'll go to another show for this. And, All right. Oh, work. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always a great pleasure. And Steve... Our good friend, hopefully you can come down to the studio next time, but thank you for your tremendous input, and I hope you feel better. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, okay. guys. Bye-bye. All right. So let's go to our announcements here. First of all, um, a happy solstice uh, to that was yesterday, to those who marked that, uh, and a happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends. That starts this evening. The Festival of Lights, and Very Merry Christmas, which starts on Wednesday. And yes, starts. Historically, Christmas is a 12-day feast that starts on December 25th, honoring the birth of Christ. Uh, no idea what day he was actually born, but that was deliberately blended with the, fe- the Feast of Sol Invictus, the Romans, and we've talked about that on a lot of shows. Uh, and ending on Epiphany or Theophany on January 6th, uh, that has nothing to do with wise men. It honors the baptism of Christ. So next time you hear the carol, the 12 days of Christmas, pay attention. Anyway, we look forward to 2020, our lecture season. Our first event will be in April. Kittery, Maine, we'll keep you posted on that. So you can check out our books, including Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of. And now, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeist, Parallel Worlds, or Poltergeist, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God. And they're available from online retailers and in some stores, but for autographed copies, please visit the online website at BehindTheParanormal.com. And that book, uh, forward by Nick Redfern, our guest today. Uh, check out, again, BehindTheParanormal.com. There's all kinds of information. Uh, there are links to several charities as well, and we ask you to check those out, uh, including uh, the Milk Fund locally here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Uh, that has a link to the uh, the station here, and you can uh, check it out that way. Uh, okay, so, Ben, what do we have uh, in the fridge for next week? So, in the fridge, uh, ready for warming up on Sunday, December 29th, uh, we will bring you an open line show to catch up on all of those questions from listeners on many paranormal subjects, and the guest co-host will be Shane Searway, and he will be back with us. Very good. And we'll leave you this afternoon with a uh, sobering thought from American author Ray Bradbury, great science fiction writer. Mysteries abound where most we seek for answers. Did we use that same quote last week? I thought we didn't get to it last week. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to look back and we will be We'll find to, out. <laughs> uh, really. But again, uh, thanks to our uh, special guest co-host today, uh, Steve LaPlume, and uh, also our um, uh, re- wonderful guest, Nick Redford. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on a great cosmic journey, and we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now.